And tonight, in our time in the Word, we are going to be continuing in the Gospel of Luke. So every week, we take a small text out of the larger chapter for the week, and we look at it together. So this week, we are in Luke 16. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. And look right there at the beginning. That's where we're going to be tonight. Luke 16, the first 13 verses we're going to be in together. And if you're wanting to stay in the know of where I'm going to be preaching, uh, you can read Luke 17 for next week. Just read through the whole chapter and then I'll select a part of it for us to walk through. And if you ever have any questions about the message or anything like that, feel free to reach out to me. If you want to catch up on any of our previous teachings, I know a few of you have asked me about that. Um, You can actually find our teachings and messages here on a podcast as well. If you go to anywhere you find podcasts and you type in Quorumdale College, you'll see two channels. You'll see our Centered Committed Confident podcast, which is our weekly discipleship podcast. But then you'll also see a podcast called Quorumdale College Teachings. And that is these messages right here. If podcasts aren't your thing, you can also go on YouTube and just type in Quorumdale College and you can find our messages as well. There's a little camera back there that records it. Um, So if that's you and you want to catch up on those, feel free to do that. So anyway, let's get into the, the scriptures. If you were with us last week, We talked about the most famous parable in history. We talked about the prodigal son. It's a famous parable with a a pretty clear meaning nowadays. And honestly, I would say that the the prodigal son parable uh, couldn't be more different than the parable that we are going to be in tonight. You know, last week when I was doing some research and study on the prodigal son, um, you know, people throughout the week, they'll ask me, what are you teaching on this Thursday? Whether it's like someone around uh, at, the, at the church on staff or it'd be some friends that we get together with. And, you know, last week I told them the prodigal son, like, oh, yeah, you know, they have some story to share about a message they heard on the prodigal son or something they learned, yada, yada. Um, and that's, you know, it's really cool to create good conversation. This week was a little more awkward um, because people would ask, oh, what are you preaching on? I'm like, oh, I'm doing, I'm doing the, uh, the unrighteous servant. I'm like, oh, yeah. Yeah, which one is that? And you're like, that's the one with the vineyard, right? And like, no, actually, it's, it's the one with, and then I'd go into it. And my, my point is this, um, this isn't the best known parable. It's not the most well known. And part of that is because it's a bit confusing. It's a confusing parable. The meaning isn't nearly as obvious right off the service. And so, and, and so here's what I want to do tonight. I want to spend the first part of this message just going through and explaining the parable going through line by line and sort of explaining what's going on. And then after we've gone through the parable, then I'd like to get into the points of application that Jesus himself gets into at the end of the parable. So that's the structure for tonight, right? We're going to talk about the parable, set it up, go through it, and then hit the points of application. And here's the first thing that I really want you to know, something I really haven't had a chance to explain yet. And that's what what is the point of a parable? What is a parable and, and why do they exist? And why do they have a special name in scripture? Best put, A parable is an illustration or story meant to teach a specific moral lesson or truth, which means that not every single little nuance and aspect of a parable is supposed to be drawn out to its full theological intent. It's not meant to be completely nuanced for all of its spiritual implications, okay? So I want to give you some examples to tell you what I mean. So for example, uh, the parable, how many of you know the parable of the, of the shepherd that leaves the 99 sheep to go find the one? That's also one of the more famous ones, right? Like, so that parable is about God's love for sinners, and it's about rejoicing, the rejoicing that happens in heaven over sinners who repent, What that parable is not meant to teach you is that if you're one of the 99, God leaves you every so often to go find the one. You see how like, 
That would be a wrong thing to take from that parable if you drew every single instance of, of context out of it into a theological imperative. Like um, here, the other one, like a couple weeks ago, we talked about the parable of the, those that knock on the door saying like, Jesus, let us in. We knew you. We ate in our streets, right? Uh, you taught in our streets. We ate in your presence. Like that is meant to teach us exactly what we talked about, right? That there would be people who said they love Christ, but did not and did not prepare for his coming. What it doesn't teach us is that there will be literal physical doors at everybody who's in hell and they'll just be knocking the whole time, right? We, we don't draw that into a theological uh, imperative. So um, last one, the parable of the vineyard owner, if you guys know that one, there's this idea of vineyard owner, like send some people to go collect money and, and send um, and like con- communicate with the farmers in the, the vineyard. And he sends his son thinking that they're going to treat his son well because it's heir. And what do they do? They kill his son. The idea of that parable is not that God doesn't know that we were going to kill his son. The idea of the parable is that he sent his son in the first place, right? And that his son was going to die. So you guys can see what I mean. You're starting to like follow along that we can't take every little meaning of a parable and assume that it has this huge theological idea, but rather a parable is a story meant to tell a truth, meant to communicate a lesson. All right, and that's what you need to understand because as we dive into that, it's going to be important. So put that idea on the shelf for now. As we dive through and go into this parable, you're going to start seeing how that plays out. So that's one of the the important things to talk about this passage, Um, but let's get into uh, another one. And um, that's really, let's start looking at it in the text for now. So let's get our eyes, Luke chapter 16, verse 1. Luke 16, verse 1, I'm going to read just this first verse. It says, he also said, he being Jesus, also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possession. So here's the first thing that I'd love for us to notice tonight. And that's this, that the parable, this parable is for disciples. This parable is for disciples. That means that it is for us. You know, the last three weeks, we have looked at parables that are being spoken mostly to Pharisees and mostly to, to Jews, unrepentant Jews, um, those who thought they were part of the promise. But now we have a parable that is directed towards the men and women who follow Jesus. So as we start this parable together, first things to know is that you need, you need to come to this text with an attitude of learning, with an attitude of, you know what? This is for disciples. I'm a disciple. That means this parable is for me. And there is a truth that should apply directly to me as a disciple. So that's the first point. It's super simple, super short, but it's super important that we need to understand that God's word applies to our lives actively today for us. Second point, this parable, it's about money and stewardship. That's right. Tonight, we are talking about money and stewardship. So it's for the disciples and it's about money, both how we spend it and how we view it, how we spend money and how we view it. And that's why the title of this message is called A Disciple's Dollar. A Disciple's Dollar, because after this passage, after we go through it, you should be evaluating what you do with your dollars. You should be evaluating how you spend your money and how you use it and how you think about it and how much of a role it plays in your life. So this parable is for disciples and it's about money and stewardship. Let's look at the rest of it now so you can see what I mean as we go verse by verse. We'll take it a couple verses at a time. Let's look back at the text, 16, 1. 
He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig and I am ashamed to beg. So, so far, I'd say this parable is not that confusing, right? Like the rich man here is meant to represent Jesus or, or God. Rich man represents Jesus or God, and, and the manager would represent the disciples or what um, Jesus wants the disciples to learn. That part's pretty easy to understand, right? And the rich man calls his manager in. That is, he's calling the person in that manages all of his land and estate and riches and finances. He calls him in and he says, I don't like what I'm hearing. You're not doing your job. Give me a full account of everything you've done and then you're fired. That's the communication. Not happy, hand in everything you got, and then you're fired. F finish the day, pretty much. And the manager's response to this is, what am I going to do now? He says it right there at the end of what I just read, right? Like, what am I going to do now? I don't, I don't want to have to beg in the streets. I don't want to be a beggar. And I don't have the, the capability of doing hard labor. That's what he says. I'm not strong enough to just go out and start digging. What am I going to do? I don't feel like I can go work for what I need to live. And I, I'm too proud to, to go out and beg for the money that I need. So that's where we are so far. Let's continue in verse four now. Verse four, manager says, I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. So in this chunk of scripture, the manager has one of those light bulb moments, right? Like he literally, like verse four, he asks, what should I do? And then the next verse is like, oh, I know what I'm going to do. So he has this aha moment and he says, I know what to do. I'll go to the people who owe the rich man money. I'll go to the debtors and I'll have their accounts edited so that they don't have as much debt. I will lessen their debt just by changing the number and they'll be so grateful that they will welcome me warmly and take care of me after my master has fired me. That, that's what he's saying right there. That last, Actually, I don't even know if I read that last verse there. Said it to that man, right? 50, 100 measure, take your bill and write 80, and the master committed him, right? Okay, so yeah, so he says actually at the beginning of verse four there that um, they are going to take care of him. That's what it says there, right? They would take care of the manager. So the idea that the manager has is that he's going to do that, and that's exactly what he does, right? He goes to the first guy, and he takes his 100 measures of oil, and he drops it to 50. Then he goes to the second guy and he takes his 100 measures of wheat and drops it to 80. And what we really need to understand about this passage is that these numbers actually represented a ton of money. Like they, they've represented a lot of debt and a lot of wealth to be had. And I won't get into all the specifics tonight and all the uh, translations as far as how it communicates to money nowadays, but this would essentially be as if someone was buying a house, right? Buying a house and taking out a 30-year loan, it's pretty standard, buying a house, taking out a 30-year loan for $300,000. They do that, and then someone from the bank who manages the loan 
comes up and says, how much do you owe? And you're like, well, I owe $300,000. I just took it out. And they're like, yeah, go ahead and write $150,000. That's what you owe now. That's $150,000. And not only is that $150,000, but that's 15 years worth of payments. Right? So don't just even think about it in the amount of money. Think about it in the amount of life spent paying that. So you understand that this was a big deal. And the manager is banking on these men being so grateful that he did this for him that they are going to welcome him into their household. That's his idea of how he's going to be provided for. Right? I'll, I'll make sure that they're grateful, that they don't have to pay as much to my master, and, and then they're going to welcome me in my house, and I can just retire in peace, and I don't have to go beg, and I don't have to go dig. It'll be perfect. So, so far, I would still say this parable is not confusing. And if we were to stop right here, like pretend you didn't look ahead at all, like this is all you know of this parable. Manager's going to fire him, or a rich man's going to fire the manager. Manager goes and does this deceitful work and lies and makes the money less. If we were to stop right there, what would you think would happen next? What would be the thought of what you think this parable might be about? Namely, I think a lot of us would think that the rich man would come to the manager and he would find out that he's lied that he's technically stolen from him, that he's committed fraud and he would be angry and throw him out. And we would once again have another parable about someone who was not ready for the judgment of his master coming. Like, and you see, that would be our natural instinct. Like having known the character of God is that like God hates evil. God hates lying. He hates sin. He hates theft. And so we naturally anticipate, if we didn't read any further, we anticipate that this parable would be a moral lesson on right action. And it would be a moral lesson on good heart and honest living and glorifying God in all that you do. That would be one of our natural assumptions. And, and that's why this next part of the parable becomes so confusing for people. Why the next couple verses take a little while to understand. Let's look back at it. Look at verse 8 now. So after, after the manager has all, done all this, verse 8 says, The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, this is Jesus saying, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwelling. So the master commends the dishonest manager. And note, like it still calls him the dishonest manager in this. It doesn't call him repentant. It doesn't call him good. It doesn't call him faithful. Like he is still the dishonest manager in this action. So the master comes and he praises him. The master is supposed to represent God, right? And the dishonest manager is supposed to represent like what the disciples are supposed to be learning or who the disciples could be. So it does seem on surface level that God is celebrating cheating. And that's why this parable can be so confusing because it looks like God is celebrating theft, that he's celebrating deceit, that God is celebrating lies because that's what, that's what the manager did and yet he's committed for it. So let's take this point of confusion and understand how should we read our Bibles together? Like when we come to scripture, how should we read them? Well, we need to understand that what it seems like right here can't be true because there are other parts of scripture that are very clear that God is against those things. 
There are other parts of scripture that make it very clear that God is against all evil. I mean, from the 10 commandments in Exodus 20 that are literally like, don't lie, steal, cheat, to like pretty much any letter the apostle Paul has ever written, we can see time and time again that God is against those things. So we know that that can't be true. So what we need to do is we need to let clearer scriptures interpret less clear scripture. When you read, you need to let the things that you know to be certain influence the things that you are unsure about. And we know that God is against evil, that he hates sin, and that he would never commend somebody for being sinful in their actions, and he would never praise them for being dishonest. And so we need to be more clear and let clear scripture interpret that. So so what does that mean? What's going on here? Well, I think the key here is that last part of verse 8. Will you look back at it with me? The last part of verse 8, so the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, and then this line, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. So at the end of verse 8 here, Jesus goes into a very quick explanation and description of what the master is doing. And Jesus doesn't always do this with the parables. Like this is a a special circumstance. Only one other time in one other parable does Jesus take the time to immediately explain part of the parable. And this is one of those times. So he says the master commends the manager because that's what people of the world do. They celebrate shrewdness. That is, they celebrate cunningness more often than those who are Christians do. That's what the passage means. When it says sons of the world, It means unbelievers. When it says sons of light, that means Christians. And Jesus is saying that the master is commending the manager because he was cunning. And people of the world are more cunning with their money than people of God are. And Jesus is saying that needs to change. Jesus is commending the the thought. He's commending the, the heart, not the action. He's commending the cunningness when it comes to thinking about how the money is spent or how one will be provided for. And he says it there about that in verse nine. And I tell you, so then he turns to the disciples, right? So he makes this statement that like, all right, so they're different. Sons of the world, they celebrate this cunningness and, and, and they do that more than sons of light. And then he says, and I tell you, disciples, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. So when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwelling. So Jesus is not celebrating sin in this parable. Remember, I told you that we can't take every single aspect of the parable and assume that it's a theological truth, right? This is that example. I told you to shelve it in the back earlier. Like, okay, we can't take every instance and assume that's what this parable is about. There has to be like something that it's focusing on. And that's what we see. Like the point of the parable is not to celebrate dishonesty. The point of the parable is that Jesus isn't celebrating deceit or theft, but he's making a point that the Lord wants to celebrate the cunningness and the shrewdness of believers and how they handle their money. He wants to celebrate our wisdom and money the way the world celebrates it. I'll say it again, like in this parable, Jesus is not celebrating sin, but rather he's saying that believers should possess a cunningness with their money much like non-believers possess a cunningness with their money. Believers should possess a trait of thinking about the wealth they have and the wealth they could have, right? Now, hold on, hold on with me a minute, right? Believers should possess a trait of thinking about the wealth they have and the wealth they could have, but here's the stipulation. We're not talking about physical wealth. 
We're talking about eternal wealth. That's the difference. I know I'm, I'm wrapping you all up in here, but you'll see it's all going to become even more clear in just a minute, right? I, can, um, I can't make it more than, simple than this. This is the best way I can word it. Disciple, be concerned with your heavenly wealth. That's what he's getting at, right? If you're going to write one sentence about what this parable is, disciple, be concerned with your heavenly wealth. And, and Jesus is saying this in verse 9 when he says, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. So, meaning use money. When he says unrighteous wealth, he's talking about money, right? Money that comes from the world. It's not of heaven. It's of the world. Unrighteous wealth. That's a biblical way to say money. So he's saying use money. And he says, make friends. Make friends is build relation and do good to other people. Go and make some friends. What do we, what do we mean by that? We mean build relation build good relationship and be for people, right? So Jesus is saying, use money to make friends, to, to do good to others. So do good to others through earthly wealth so that you'll be building up heavenly wealth. Do all of your earthly money interactions with the desire and intent to glorify God in your heavenly wealth. So that's the parable. Let's get to more of the application. And the first one is exactly what I just said. Like, turn your earthly wealth into heavenly wealth. That's the application. That's the desire we should take from reading this parable. And that's what Jesus is trying to get at in this. Turn your earthly wealth into heavenly wealth. Like, if you want to be cunning the way the Lord is saying believers should be with their money, then you need to focus on using whatever earthly wealth you're given, right? Now, notice I'm qualifying. Whatever earthly wealth you're giving. Because I know I can already see some of you like, I don't make that much money, bro. Why are we talking about this? Like, any wealth that you are given, use it to build up your heavenly wealth. And, and not only does Jesus tell us to do that in verse 9, but he goes on to give us some reasons. Here's reasons why you should be thinking about that. And here's the first one, because money reveals character. Like turn your earthly wealth into heavenly wealth because money reveals character. Look back at verse 10 with me. So Jesus is starting into this application, right? He tells this parable and then he goes into like what they should be doing. He goes into teaching moments of application. And, and in verse 10 there, he says, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, that's the money, right? If then if you've not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? Meaning if you haven't been faithful in earthly money, how is God going to trust you with heavenly wealth? So right here in verse 10, we, we see what I call both the root and the fruit of the situation. You know what I mean? Like an apple tree. An apple tree is, if it's producing healthy fruit, that means that it has healthy roots generally, right? The fruit portrays what goes on in the roots. And to the opposite, right? Like if it's producing rotten fruit that's poor in quality, maybe the size is wrong, maybe the, the taste is off, what does that tell us about the tree? It tells us something is going on deeper in the roots. And the same thing is here. Jesus is saying that if you're faithful in the little things, then that reveals that you will be faithful in the big things. 
The little things that we have opportunities to be faithful in, those are the roots, guys. Those are the inner workings, the things that not everyone sees. And the big things are the fruit. Like if someone is faithful in all the big things in life when it comes to money, then that reveals that something about their character, namely that they're faithful in the small things. And it's easier to see like the part with being dishonest, right? Like if someone is dishonest in the big things in their life, it is safe to assume that something is going on in the roots of their life, in the small things, that they're also being dishonest. Like, we see this example all over the place. Let's, let's take any famous pastor that has been disqualified from ministry. And, and unfortunately, you can just pretty much pick one. Uh, and there's one like every week nowadays in the news. So just pick a famous pastor that's been disqualified from ministry for any reason. Let's say that there was one who was disqualified from ministry because he was found committing adultery against his wife, right? He was cheating on his wife with another woman. Immediately... On top of the fallout, on top of the pain and the hurt and the trauma for everyone involved and the church, what do we see churches do? What do we see people do? They immediately begin investigating into the pastor's life to see what else might have been going on, to see what else he might be deceiving in, to see what else he might be lying in. Why is that? It's because he was dishonest in a big thing. Right? A very visible thing. And so our natural assumption is that if something that big you are willing to be dishonest about, then you will certainly be willing to be dishonest about the little things that no one sees and that don't matter as much, right? Like that is an assumption we can see that if you're not faithful in the big things, the assumption is you're probably not being faithful in the little things. And this, and so this, this concept, it, like it shouldn't shock you very much, right? That, that's where the concept of trust comes from. The idea of trusting someone typically comes from the idea of if they're trustworthy in the small things in your relationship, you tend to trust them in the bigger things in a relationship and vice versa. And if they break some big trust in your relationship, you tend to stop even trusting them in the small things. It's about, we can see that about trust, but, but Jesus isn't talking about just the character revealed now, right? He's talking about how money reveals character, how people handle it. And if you're faithful in the little that you're given, it's a good chance you're going to be faithful in the big and vice versa. So before we move on to the next point, I want to have one final consideration here. Like, what do we mean by big things and small things? I've been sort of all over the place about it. Well, big and small could be the amount of money, certainly, that you're given, right? If you are faithful with a little bit of money that the Lord gives you, that shows that you could certainly be faithful with a lot of money. Or if you're faithful, it could be earthly and heavenly. If you're, if you're faithful with the things of the earth that the Lord has given you, how much more does he say you're going to be faithful in the, with the things of God that he has given you? But it can also be the noticeable things, right? Like if you're faithful in the things that no one sees, faithful in the things that no one knows about except between you and God, it shows that you might be willing to be faithful in the big things that people see around you. So obviously this, this could apply to so many aspects of your life. Like uh, the more faithful I am to my wife, like the small things that I am faithful in with conversations and, and thoughts and, and things like that, like the more faithful I'll most likely be in the, in the big things and the big trials of marriage that come along or vice versa, the looser I am in my marriage with my wife like and my faithfulness to her, the easier it is to be dishonest in the big things of my marriage. And, and that's an example. But in this specific instance, Jesus is talking about money and, and the question is, are you faithful with it? Or are you dishonest with it? Do you seek to build up the kingdom with your money, give it to the needy, help the poor, save the lost? Do you seek to do all these things, big and small, empowered by the motivation that it's for heaven? 
Or are you dishonest in these things, both big and small? Do you earn only for yourself? Do you think only how you're going to spend the money to get earthly wealth and earthly gain rather than earthly wealth for heavenly gain? And now, like I said, some of you might be saying, like, bro, I'm a, I'm a broke college student. Like, I don't have wealth. And, and, and to that, I say no. Like, you may not be wealthy at the moment, but the whole purpose of this is what kind of person would you be if you were? What kind of person are you right now with the money that you're given? If you get a $10 paycheck every week from your work study, what are you doing with those $10? Faithfulness is not determined by the amount that you're given. Faithfulness is determined by what you do with what you're given. So if you have a small amount of money, are you being faithful with that? So either way, the application of this passage is to be intentional with, with turning earthly wealth to heavenly wealth because it reveals your character. It says something about you and your relationship with the Lord. But here's the other thing. It's because money is God's. That's the other reason you should turn your earthly wealth into heavenly wealth because the money belongs to God in the first place. Like Jesus is intentional. Look back at verse 12 here. And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Jesus is intentional in this discussion of being faithful in money to mention that it is another's, meaning that the money we are called to steward, it's not ours. Any earthly wealth that you are given is just a means in which God allows you to show your character and your faithfulness. Let me say that again. Like every dollar in your wallet or your Apple wallet or your, your bank account like every single dollar, every single penny, every single transaction is an opportunity to show faithfulness to God. Because it's his money in the first place, right? Think about what the parable was. The parable was a rich man and the manager. God is the rich man. We are just the manager, managing the money that the Lord has given us. You're called to, like it says in verse 12, be faithful with another because he's the one who will give you your own. You see that there at the end of verse 12, right? That he will give you your own. Like be faithful with the money you have on earth because it's God. It's God's and, and he's the one who gives you wealth in heaven. So does this mean you need to live in a sackcloth on the street? Does it mean that you need to give every single penny to the poor? Does it mean you need to take nothing for yourself? That if... You and your family need to, you are going to live out on the streets in order to give every single dollar of every single paycheck over to the poor and needy? No, of course not. Right? Stewardship means that you do what's right with what you have. If you want to have a definition of, of stewardship, like if this is about money and handling it well, like stewardship is you do what's right with what you have. You handle it well. And, and what does that mean? It means that money shouldn't match to you. And that's our last point as we're closing tonight. Choose your master. If you're trying to think through like, well, how do I know if I'm giving enough and, and what I'm doing with the money that I'm given? How do I know that I'm being a good, faithful servant? How do I know I'm building up heavenly wealth? Like you start with this one right here. Like the application, choose your master. Look at verse 13. No servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Like Jesus doesn't get much clearer than this, guys. Like he asks a lot of questions. He tells a lot of parables. It's not often that he gives like a tweetable statement statement so quickly and in one moment, but that's it, right? You cannot serve. It is not possible. You, it is improbable that you will ever 
be able to serve God and money at the same time. Not going to happen. So what does that mean? It means that every dollar you earn, every dollar you earn, does it need to go to the poor? Does it need to be 100% tithe? Are you going to be the person that gives 100% tithe? No, but it does mean that every dollar that you have is given to the Lord. Every dollar that you have, that you earn, that you spend starts with the request and the prayer. Lord, you've given this to me. I'm the manager. You have given me this money and how would you choose me to use it? Father, I just got an extra $500. I just got an extra $500 and the new Apple Watch just came out. I really want that Series 8. I want that temperature monitor in it. Right, my, my Apple Watch is a scratch. I'd love to have another Apple Watch. It looks so pretty. Lord, I got an extra $500. Can I get it? That's the type of prayers we should be praying over the things that are given to us, right? Now, sometimes the Lord will be like, no, that's selfish and vain. No, don't do that. Go take that money. You know somebody right now that's in need. You know somebody that doesn't even have dinner on the table. Go spend that and get them some food. You know, you, know, you know a couple that's in distress. Buy them a gift card, send them on a date night and watch their kids and have a pizza night with their kids. Like spend that money going to do something that's gonna build up the kingdom or help those in need. Now, sometimes it means that the Lord will be like, yes, enjoy my daily graces. Enjoy the things of the life that I've given over to you because I've made life great and I want you to enjoy the things that I've made in this world. It's a balance, guys, and it all happens with prayer, right? Lord, help me manage your money that you have given me. And so I just wanna ask you, when you're trying to go through this, who's your master? As you're making these decisions, as you're receiving paychecks, and as all of you are hoping to make more money in the future. I don't think I've talked to anyone that doesn't want to make more money at some point in the future. Half of you are taking on a lot of debt right now because you think you're going to make more money with a degree later on. That's your hope. And I want to say, as a college student, this matters to you because one of your motivations is money with where you're at in life, and you can't let that master you. And so start there. Long parable, confusing parable. No preacher in the world loves to preach about money. I'll tell you that. And almost no one loves to sit there and talk about money. There's a reason why money is one of the biggest fights in marriage and one of the leading causes of divorce, okay? So um, if you have any questions, come find me afterwards. Clearly, I could preach about all the ways that we could nuance how to spend the right money, but that's for another day, another dollar. Ha! Another day, another dollar. All right, anyway, let me pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this time. I pray, Lord, that you would um, just use um, all of that was preached here tonight to influence us. Um, Father, there are many things I missed, many things I bumbled over, many things that just prove that I am just an imperfect human. And Lord, I pray that through your grace, you would write over all those. Pray that through your grace, your word would still speak true. I pray that through your grace, there would still be people in this room that are impacted at the thought that all that they're given is just yours, Lord, and they need to figure out how you would have them use it. Lord, be with us now as we spend time in community and be with us as we study Luke 17 for next week. And I ask, Father, that you're with our C groups as they kick off this week. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.